Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, uh, the editor-in-chief and publisher here at Business Insider Australia. David Scott is on assignment this week in Burley Heads, getting in some well-earned surf. Um, but this week, we've got a global slowdown special. Um, look, one of the big questions for investors everywhere, and of course for Australia, uh, being a trade-exposed nation is how the evident slowdown in the global economy, which is being driven by a range of dynamic factors, including some unpredictable politics, is going to play out. To discuss this, we're joined by Robert Rennie, who is Global Head of Market Strategy at Westpac and a real expert in trade flows, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, process behind uh, the trade di dispute between the US and China, uh, and of course, the global economic outlook. Rob, welcome back on the show. Great to be back, thank you. Um, okay, so we're gonna start with a look at what's actually happened in recent months. Uh, we'll look at Robert's trade data modeling, which includes shipping counts, what that's telling us. We'll look at the US-China trade war, uh, and what the next steps are there. Uh, we'll look at commodities, obviously important for uh, Australia, national income there. Uh, and then at the end, we'll zoom back in on Australia and have a look at what it all means for us here. But Rob, let's go back about, uh, you know, and look at what has happened in the last few months, uh, because the picture did change towards the end of last year. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this global slowdown, but I was looking back over some numbers today and the IMF, you know, shaved its global growth predictions still looking at a healthy 3% plus, right? So, but maybe you can talk us through what's actually happened that that has led to this whole conversation. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. You con contrast the kind of discussion that we would have been having this time last year where it was strong, synchronous global growth and we were really celebrating that. Um, look, I think a number of things changed um, through last year. Um, you know, I do think that we saw evidence of a significant tightening in global financial conditions and you can put that down to a number of factors. Um, through, let's say, um, uh, the beginning uh, of last year, the rate of increase, if you look at G3 central bank balance sheet and you throw in um, global central bank reserves XG3, that measure of liquidity or the change, the year-on-year -year change, was rising at about 2.75 trillion US dollars. And that was essentially the peak. I mean, we haven't really seen that measure of global liquidity above that level all the way back through 2013, 2015, and to be perfectly honest, back to the financial crisis. So we hit sort of peak liquidity um, from a central bank uh, uh, balance sheet point of view. You push that much money into, uh, into the global economy, into global financial markets, good things are going to happen. You then walk forward to the end of last year and that same measure, 2.75 as of March, was running just very slightly below zero. So essentially that, that's a, a very aggressive two and three quarter of the best, two and three quarter trillion US dollars of the best liquidity you could possibly find flowing into global financial markets switched off through last year. Um, we also saw the Fed tightening 100 basis points. A number of other central banks would have tightened last year as well. If I look at, so 100 basis points of Fed tightening, if I look at a PPP GDP weighted um, G10 measure of monetary policy, in other words, what is that 100 basis points from the Fed and the tightening that we saw from other um, central banks, what does that mean for G10? It's about 42 basis points the way that I calculate it. So it's essentially two rate hikes were imposed on the whole of G10, whole plus that's that liquidity switch which just was switched off. And I guess also, you know, as we looked into this year, we had the Fed basically saying late last year that its balance sheet decay was on autopilot, uh, which certainly didn't help. Um, and clearly the Fed was continuing to, uh, to pencil in or indicate a fairly aggressive rate um, hike program as well. Throw in some other you know, idiosyncratic factors, I mean Brexit, um, uh, Carney recently talking about the fog of Brexit, you know, here we are less than 50 days away potentially. Um, some changes to um, German auto emission requirements as well. U.S. shutdowns, trade disputes, you name it. You know, you bit, throw that. You know, more questions coming back about Italy. I, absolutely, yeah. gilets jaunes in uh, in France. You know, etc. You name it. You know, there was a number of sort of idiosyncratic factors, and it was that sudden sell-off that we saw, a really powerful sell-off that we saw late last year. Not surprisingly, it's really started to show up in data, and, and obviously, international organisations like the IMF, as they look into this year certainly have had to uh, degrade the outlook for uh, global growth. So there was a lot of twitchiness. Um, so, so there's two things going on there. So obviously there's the liquidity yeah. withdrawal 
and then you layer in on top of that this kind of um, uh, something that I think we'll discuss as we go on through this conversation, but um, the unpredictable nature of um, some of the market inputs, which yes. are um, you know political decisions by political yep. leaders or or uncertain political outlooks. So obviously. The really obvious one there is is, uh, is Trump, but mm. then you know France, as you mentioned, correct. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the the politics there looks uncertain. Absolutely, Macron need to may yeah. need to pull some other handles um, to stabilize things if he wants yeah. to um, yeah. uh, stay, you know, in command. Um, so um, you 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 add all these things together. You had the the liquidity withdrawal, and then this kind of new unpredictable uncertainty. And we got this whippiness yes. in in markets. Yeah. Uh, and there was these hard signals that global demand was Correct. slowing. So yes. you put all those things together. Now, interestingly, I've seen a few investment banks yep. in recent weeks saying, actually, we're we're not going to be underweight. Uh, emerging markets yep. so much anymore. We're, we're, we're a bit more confident about getting back in yep. to that long EM uh, trade. Um, what's happening there? Yeah, look, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, and, and certainly as, a, as an in, innocent sort of equity um, investor, observer, etc., you know, certainly the um, the very aggressive sell-off, you know, particularly um, over the, um, uh, the holiday period, um, you know, to me, I think that markets probably being in a situation where you were talking about an imminent recession in the U.S., uh, you know, I'm not sure with annual employment growth running, you know, close to two percent, you know, 200 plus uh, thousand jobs being created, a real improvement, you know, particularly the prime age male, um, you know, participation rates would be at some of the best levels that we would look, we'd be looking at in almost 10 years in the U.S. So that's sort of, it's a very different picture if you look at, if you take a, a plot of um, global PMIs, you know, you look at them and, and, and scale them sort of red below 50, green above 50. Beginning of last year, it was a sea of green. Um, end of last year, it was an emerging sea of red. Um, do the same from an unemployment point of view, and you really don't get the same picture at all. You really, do, genuinely, you don't. And that really is, you know, I think that's an important point to make. Um, I'm, I'm certainly, again, as an innocent equity investor, um, you know, when I look at your particularly EM, um, you know, MSCI um, EM would have been down, you know, uh, high to low would have been down 28% last year. Uh, okay, sure, a year before it would have been up, you know, whatever percent. Uh, I think that's too much, uh, you know, and I think that if you address the aggressive tightening in financial conditions that we saw late last year, and remember a number of central banks have shifted their policy um, uh, directives, uh, uh, Fed, uh, uh, RBA, Bank of England, the Reserve Bank of India has cut rates, and I'm sure there's probably going to be some other central banks as they come out with um, uh, forecasts, etc., probably shifting as well. Um, so I think we've arrested the, um, the tightening financial conditions to an extent, and I think that that should be important. Mm -hmm. And as long as we can get through this sort of real political uncertainty, and we seem to, you know, certainly looking at the headlines before I left the office, it does seem to be the case that uh, Trump is probably more predisposed. Um, to uh, settling some of the issues, or at least um, uh, you know, kicking the, um, uh, the, the you know the timelines further down the track. You, you put that mix together, and I'm I'm not convinced it's a particularly negative uh, outlook. Sure, we've degraded the outlook for global growth. It's late cycle, um, but I'm I'm just not convinced that it's um, you know it's the recessionary story that some in the market uh, are, are particularly focused on. Just uh, on that. Um that, that question of um, the, the political uncertainty. Uh, and I do think it's it's interesting that, you know, we're recording on Thursday overnight. Um, the Dow stacked on, I think, 100 points. Yep. Um, and um, it's about this, you know, this daily reading of the tea leaves, you know, how our relationship, how's the relationship between Beijing and Washington. Yep. Um, <laughs> so anytime that there are there's any kind of murmur that, that, that things might be improving, um, U.S. stocks rally, right? Um, so, um, but again, you know, to go back to something we, re we referenced um, just a few minutes ago, uh, this stuff is kind of unpredictable. And yeah. as, 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 as the Trump White has, has shown, um, and as we've seen, um, say, with the pound, through yep. nu numerous developments in the ongoing Brexit chaos, um, 
uh, there's a political development which can rapidly reprice things. Yes. Right. Now, so can I ask you, how do you handle that conversation with clients, right? So, you know, political decisions being a, you know, some, a significant factor in, in some of this volatility. Um, so the outcomes are harder to predict. So, you, yeah. you know, you can use hard data and we'll talk about your models in a second to forecast certain outcomes. Yeah. But this stuff is much more hard, hard to predict. So how do yeah. you handle that when you're talking to the yeah, look, clients? I, yeah, I mean, and it's a great question. Um, look, I think the way that you have to handle that is really look through the um, the headlines and really understand the process. I mean, you sort of introduced, introduced me as a bit of an expert on trade. Um, you know, it's something I've been watching very, very closely. And I do genuinely think, you know, when I think about trade, I think that, you know, at times we misunderstand the fact that a tightening global financial conditions can have a tremendous impact through trade finance on trade activity. So it's not it's not the headlines per se. It's not the fact that the buyers and the sellers are necessarily changing their their habit. It's the fact that you know trade finance really is the liquidity that keeps global trade going. And I think late last year we saw some evidence of it of it really gumming up. Uh, you're seeing a, a deterioration in the credit cycle in in China. And if the banks that would be offering sort of day-to-day letters of credit and straightforward trade finance can't deal with the names. There's nobody that can afford to ship from port A to B. And mm. I think we saw some evidence of that um, uh, taking place. There's a great podcast I listened to recently um, on trade. Um, uh, it's uh, Chad Bourne uh, Trade Talks. It's, uh, he works at the Peterson Institute and it's Samaya, Samaya Keynes, uh, also at The Economist. If, you know, if anyone is really interested in trade you know, and, and wants to delve deeper into it. Uh, it's interesting, uh, the Peterson Institute puts out a lot of really great. interesting well, that, stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a great podcast. But they had a girl from um, uh, um, uh, UCL uh, University College London, Kalina Manava, and she's done a tremendous amount of work around this. It it's exactly that, you know, you, you kind of, uh, you hit uh, letters of credit, sort of trade finance, you know, the, the seller doesn't want to be in a situation where the funding, uh, the material from uh, port A to B, the, the, the buyers not, you know, doesn't want to do the same. And it really falls to day-to-day banking and it's a credit decision. Uh, and we did see late last year a very sudden drop off in trade that's outside of, you know, US. So not at yeah. all impacted by tariffs, not at all impacted by tariffs. Now, maybe secondary impact is uh, there and it's very, di- it's very hard to uh, differentiate. But there was November, December, something changed. Yeah, because there's a potential inflationary Correct. impact Correct. in the Absolutely. US from, Absolutely. from, from, from so the tariffs. So you can't really, you can't say no, but I do think that really understanding, you know, that the plumbing of the, of, of the trade system, I think is very important. Then what you've got to really do is understand the, uh, the timelines. And last time I was on the podcast, I think we almost dedicated an hour to the, yes. you know, what's the difference between 232s and 301s? You know, you've got the um, uh, US Trade Representative and the Commerce Department you know, totally different sort of drivers for it. But I think when you have an under, a, a good understanding of the, uh, the timelines and the likely outcomes on the basis of, um, you know, particularly when you look at sort of the, um, the autos um, uh, uh, investigation, and that's, you know, when you talk about timelines, as of Sunday, um, uh, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Department, will have to hand down uh, the uh, Section 23 auto tariff investigation. And I remember when I was in the program last, we talked about the fact that, you know, about 20% of US auto production is European companies in the US. And you don't really have the critical market to consume all of those autos. So you then export uh, about 60% of them into China. If you bring in an, an auto tariff situation, um, it just doesn't make any sense. And again, we, we talked about the Peterson Institute. They've done some great sort of general equi- uh, equilibrium modeling about you know, the potential impact. And you're looking at 500,000, 600,000 auto workers that would be potentially impacted as a, as a result right. of that. Some of them will be displaced and, and you know, sucked into other industries. But when you look at it from a logical point of view, does Trump, when he's going for re-election, you know, yeah. and he has shown, shown some, some signs of sort of softening his stance, the wall yeah. being a good you know, example of that, I want funding for the complete wall, I'm happy for 55 or 
it looks like I'm happy for 55 miles. I'm not sure what percentage 55 miles is of the complete Mexican border, but I guarantee it's a pretty low number. Now, maybe it's the important parts of the, uh, the Mexican border that we're, you know, we'll build a wall on. But if you're in a situation where you're gonna settle, then I think you're inclined to probably talk, not take the advice of the more hawkish members of the administration. So the Rosses, the, uh, the Lighthizers give, China a chance. And I think when you come down to, you know, understand the plumbing, understand the, uh, the timelines and understand the impact, I think you have a better understanding of the sort of the, the probability weights for any of those unknown unknowns. And let's face to it. To come to pass. Yeah. 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 And I yeah. think, you know, so, so use a sort of a logical understanding, use a logical approach, and you probably arrive at the, um, the idea that, um, yeah, you know, taking that next um, 200 billion of tariffs up from 10% to 25% right here, right now, probably doesn't make any sense. Mm. Given that, China has shown a willingness to, uh, to shift. Yeah. Ooh, and, uh, yeah, no, it certainly is interesting, the whole idea of, um, that the, you know, Middle America, and I mean physically in the middle yeah. of America, all all of the the um, um, like Michigan, um, uh, these parts of the country that um, are you know fundamental to Trump's support base, Correct. and companies that are big employers Correct. walking in there over the next twelve months and saying, hey, um, because our cars are now. 80% more expensive in China uh, to the retailer, we've got a problem, we're yep. going to have to cut back production by absolutely. X. Uh, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> and I think absolutely politically, somebody, I think very clever, um, uh, put it to me last year, said, you know, do you think that, you know, like, can you imagine the, the number of people who are in business in the United States at the moment who are going to sleep at night and go, thinking, um, at last somebody is standing up to China? because my business has been hollowed out, um, you know, and they may have some certain political commitments, views, all of that kind of thing, yeah. but they will have known that China has been a massive competitor for them Absolutely. on all sorts of um, yeah. product lines uh, and in all sorts of industries um, for, for two decades now. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and I think that was a really interesting insight into, you know, like the, the on the ground politics uh, of Trump's support yeah. base. And I saw that uh, there was one Rasmussen poll um, over the weekend, maybe, that showed Trump with a 53% approval rating, you know? Okay. Um, so the, the, the shutdown had been resolved and his approval rating spiked and they're you know, looking pretty healthy. Yeah. Um, so, um, but obviously, you know, there's a lot of golf to play uh, in terms of the politics of this and, and in terms of the trade process and how that will all wash through to jobs. Now, um, uh, you touched briefly on uh, your trade uh, modeling, mm. uh, which is some work you do um, uh, at Westpac. Um, maybe you can start, before we go into what it's, the signals mm. that it's telling us, because um, uh, I saw a research note that um, you had out on it uh, a few days ago, but yeah. um, maybe we can start with what the trade model is that yeah. you have yeah. uh, and, uh, and how it works. Yeah, I mean, whenever I sit down and sort of talk about my uh, models, that you know, there's there's a mixture of sort of love for the econometrics and um, and tinkering. Um, so if anyone sort of asks me, and it's not that I'm trying to sort of cover up the tracks and um, disguise what's going on, it's more the fact that I, I guess the uh, the process has evolved, um, shall we say, um, over the years. Um, you know, so, so essentially, um, it's what I would call a, a a bridge forecasting model. Bridge forecasting models are common for things like um, GDP, etc. And it's really born of the fact. I mean, you use auto regressive components because there tends to be a rhythm um, for um, uh, trade and trade activity, whether it's um, you know Lunar New Year, um, you know weather patterns in uh, India with monsoon. But if you've got a good idea of the you know the, the underlying sort of rhythm within the uh, the year, you throw in some other variables in it into it. So you've got the autoregressive, which basically says you know what did it do last year? Let's portray that on, but then throw some other variables into it. I'm not a big fan of of pure bridge modeling, and that's purely because it basically 
basically says, you know, this year basically models last year and I want something that will really give me a, uh, a proper forecast. So I sort of describe it as somewhere between a nowcast and a, uh, and a bridge model. So I take the benefits of the fact that there's an underlying rhythm, uh, but then I'll, I'll sort of overload the, uh, the models with a lot of sort of nowish indicators. So, um, you know, things like container traffic, I think is very important. Um, you know, you can throw in some financial variables. I think, you know, copper, his historically, you know, we all call copper Dr. Copper, because I think for a very good reason it does, you know, there's, there's a lot of information in there. So I'll throw copper into it. Um, uh, Asian imports, I think, are important. Chinese in, uh, imports in, uh, uh, in particular. And then things like, um, you know, sort of air freight, um, you know, the semiconductor um, uh, cycle, very important. And again, if I sort of mentioned that sort of map of PMIs, um, that, um, that we're looking at across the world within Asia. Um, you know, s many of the southern um, Asian uh, PMIs are still above 50. I mean, India is a good example. Of, you know, really um, uh, Korea, Taiwan, China, um, sort of to an extent Malaysia, Philippines. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, trade with China, but I also think it's the, uh, the tech cycle. You know, we've seen a, a real, a very sharp drop of drop off in the uh, in the tech cycle <coughs> mm -hmm. and that's a source of concern so put put in a lot of those indicators well maybe it's not because we, you know we've been for, for 10 years we've been sure. this vat of boiling oil where every year you've got to upgrade your iphone sorry i'm being true. A bit facetious true, but true. Uh, true, true. but you know we, we but, have had this pretty golden age of, of, of tech manufacturing yeah yeah, yeah uh, which was yeah. all based across these massive supply chains that got built in asia and yeah iPhone sales are now slowing down. Yep. Um, uh, the replacement cycle for Correct. consumers is starting to extend. Correct. Um, so I imagine that's part of absolutely. This, Ab you know, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But know. I mean, semi-sales would have been running at a good sort of you know 10, 15 percent this time last year, 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 very, very strong. Um, and um, air freight, you know, one of the indicators I like is sort of Asia Pacific air freight, because let's face it, if you're going to put something on a plane, you know, and pay the premium for it, and you do, a, a, you know, there's a very strong correlation between the semiconductor cycle and, and uh, air freight within Asia. So you're kind of capturing the same thing there. But let's face it, it's going to be pretty high volume. It's got to be pretty uh, in demand for you to stick it, um, you know, on a box, on a plane and uh, ship it. Um, and, um, you know, air freight numbers, uh, you know, Asia Pacific air freight numbers um, late last year really fell off a cliff. So that's sort of telling you that. Um, uh, you Was know, this around the same time? I think we'll get into some of this, but uh, uh, Korean uh, exports correct uh, collapsed something like correct. six percent. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 And remember, you know, a reasonable amount of those um, exports from the likes of um, uh, uh, Korea and Taiwan are straight into China as well. I mean, we're talking, you know, tens plus, uh, you know, 20, 30 percent, um, you know, in, in, in certain areas. So, you know, you stress. So you do a number of things here. One, you know, you stress the trade finance and it sort of gums up. Um, you also have a lot of bring forward, you know, and let's face it, and one of the, the you know, the, um, the indicators that I watch fairly closely is just the um, uh, cost of shipping a container from Hong Kong to LA. Um, uh, in, you know, kind of August, September, October of last year, you were looking at some of the highest levels for um, cost of shipping a shipping box from Hong Kong to LA um, all the way back to 2013. Mm. And again, there's a bring forward, you know, mm -hmm. so that sort of cycle of last year, let's face it, if you were, um, is you it know, bring forward because people expect tariffs to start applying, etc. Okay, yeah. well, let's move it yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So you've got that cycle. You overlay the aggressive tech cycle. You gum up trade, and not surprisingly, um, uh, you you've got a, a model. And I mean, you know, my models for really through um, second half of last year, they were constantly saying that we were going to go from you know this time last year you were running at sort of plus fifteen percent year year Asian export growth. Um, you were looking at absolute all-time. What we have to remember here, one of the charts I love bringing people back to when you say, um, you know, you've gone from plus 15% year, year back to zero, and indeed negative late last year, but look at the absolute level mm -hmm. of Asian exports, whether it's seasonally adjusted, and even if, if it's in a volume basis, both measures would have made absolute all-time record highs, you know, at some point in the uh, third quarter. And now some of that, of course, is bring forward. 
absolutely. And it's really only, a, you know, it's really only through the first and probably into the second quarter that we'll be able to say with any sort of real confidence what the, uh, the picture looks like. But all the way through last year, the models were saying slowdown coming. We're going to hit negative year year at some point. Um, towards the end of last year and you know we hit negative year year in December of last year and the absolute seasonally adjusted level of Asian exports would have been at some of the lowest levels I think back to 2014 I think that was right. the number okay. that I yeah. Yeah. so it really okay. it came off quite sharp right. um, and that's where you come to this idea that you know trade finance sort of credit it, it, it struck me that there was other factors at work over and above just sort of um, heightened concern about uh, trade, et cetera. Um, and one quick question just uh, that I'm just curious about. You, you said that you put Asian uh, exports uh, and imports into your model. Um, so the data from that, is it headline data or do you break it up? Like how granular do you break up the categorization? I'm not going to give too many secrets away, <laughs> but, but to be perfectly honest, I mean, uh, right up until um, uh, November, December of last year, Chinese imports. I mean, to be honest, um, Chinese imports. Given that uh, you know, if um, 20, 30 percent of um, you know Korea, Taiwan exports are machinery, machinery parts. Japan's important there as well, um, being imported into uh, into China. If you see signs that stopping, then you know you've got a bit of an issue there. So you know, a bit of granularity, but watching machinery, machinery parts. You know, imports from a number of nations within Asia. I think gives you a reasonable um, uh, look at sort of what's coming. You know, one, two, three months. Down the um, down the track, okay. if uh, if that makes sense. So um, let's just recap quickly. So what it's saying now is you, you talked about these uh, all-time record levels. Yep. Um, and it's saying flat. So yeah. Um, rather than um, yeah minus you know, minus minus yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. so and. Uh, in an environment like this, where there's this kind of risk around like the global slowdown, and say, yeah. you know, flat is okay. Um, you know, uh, flat is okay. Like we used to say in the newspaper business uh, when I was there many, many, many years ago, flat is the new up um, <laughs> uh, in terms of circulation, etc. Absolutely. Uh, if you were holding steady, you were okay. Yeah. Um, so when there is all this risk, um, uh, that um, you, you, you're suddenly um, it kind of you know people are, and people are very worried about it. There was yep. a bit of a panic, uh, particularly, uh, and I think you know in the course of this conversation, a few light bulbs have gone on for me. It makes the it makes the Fed's move seem even more significant than yes. um, because people were worried about this tightening in in all sorts of. Um, so the slowdown plus the the U.S. tightening. Yes. But if you just ease global financial uh, conditions just a tiny bit yep. um, with the Fed saying look we're just going to push out yes. um, some, some rate hikes then you put a little bit of support under the entire trade system yeah. um, so it's really really interesting and um, before um, uh, we um, let, well actually let's get let's get on to the US China trade war quickly mm. um, big activity um, coming up in March yes yes so what's going to happen Oh, what's going to happen, Luke? I think that um, if it was Robert Lighthizer, so the U.S. Trade Representative, and let's face it, you know, he his office shapes trade policy. Um, you know that that's what that role is um, designed to do. I think if it was his call, um, he would um, take, you know, the the um, two hundred billion from ten um, to twenty five percent. Um, and I think he would probably be looking at um, you know, further tariffs as well. Under the um, uh, US-China Trade Relations um, Act, um, uh, there's an annual report, um, it's called the Section 421 um, Report. And it's, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the 2000 US-China Trade Relations Act was very much about, um, you know, dealing with China with, within the WTO. Every year that report is uh, released, um, it was released a couple of weeks ago, it might have been last week. It's about 175 pages long. Mm -hmm. I took a copy of it home and, you know, I kind of got, uh, I, I, well, I, didn't, I didn't finish it. Um, but it sort of very much details 
um, uh, the issues that, um, uh, that the US has with um, uh, China around the uh, forced technology transfer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the discriminatory regulations, um, leveraging state capital to acquire high-tech assets, um, and let's face it, at the end of the day, good old-fashioned IP theft, okay. whether it's cyber, uh, whether it's physical, um, you know, those are the four very um, core sort of structural issues. I remember when it was on the program last, we talked about um, it would have been 2010, uh, Lighthizer um, uh, presented a paper of, at a, uh, an event which was you know, 10 years after China and the WTO. And the language that, um, uh, that, that he used then um, about you know, uh, the US needs to be much more imaginative in the way that it um, uh, addresses um, uh, China. Um, and to be perfectly honest, you read that 176 page um, uh, document and the language really hasn't changed and it hasn't changed at all. Right. And I yeah. think to be perfectly honest, you know, there's a lot to be said for the fact, you know, that those four or five issues that the US administration has with uh, China in the WTO, I think there's a, a lot to be said for the fact that, you know, a lot of it has um, has merit um, yeah. that um, you know that China does not, and even in situations where it says it will abide by WTO regulations, it's pretty slow to uh, to meet those requirements. So, so this is something that started to come out in the commentary a little bit that, that we are, and it's really interesting that you you, you know thank you for reading the report. Um, mm. <laughs> not all of it. So, I must be honest. Yeah. Not all of it. Um, Still lying next to the uh, sofa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it, it, you know this this uh, commentary that started to come out that we are really starting. So China has offered bizarrely to yep. to address the, the the trade imbalance. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's these questions over whether they they could actually could do actually it and could yeah. could could buy enough from the United States yeah. to 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 meet what they sell. Yeah. Um, back back to back to America, um, but. There's been this increasing talk that now we're getting to the real what this was is really all about it's the art of the deal, which is the yeah, um, yeah it's a bit of art of the deal, yeah. but also you know uh, like I say you know the leverage, um, finally putting China in a position where they have to talk yeah. about the substantive issues that the United States has with like yes. um, uh, the way it uses companies like the um, uh, the technology transfer um, uh, IP theft, which is um, or just failing to follow through on yeah. international standards on uh, uh, IP protection. So how much do you buy into this that um, you, you did mention that it, you know, some of this stuff is valid? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think most, I think many would accept the fact that there is validity and, you know, in, in, in a reasonable amount. I think you question whether we're going around the right way. You know, the, the, there's a kind of common term in that trade negotiation, which is plurilateral. And the idea of plurilateral is, I mean, you'll, not, you'll never get multilateral um, uh, approval. And you look at the various WTO rounds and the GATT rounds and, you know, it, it just takes years and then it falls over because somebody says, nah, I don't like that. And then that's it. It's all over. So what you then do is you find like-minded, you know, so you team up with Europe, you team up with um, the UK, you know, depending on the, uh, the political picture and you try and force um, uh, China to change, you don't go and start a trade war uh, with China and then start a trade war. You know, the, um, uh, the, the Section 232 um, uh, steel and aluminium, you know, you're taxing your uh, closest neighbors mm -hmm. in a situation. To me, we've gone, you know, the Trump administration has gone around it absolutely the wrong way. And the much better way to do it is build these plurilateral um, agreements and, and, and bring cases through WTO yeah. and try. Not Notwithstanding the fact, Co coalitions of the frustrated. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I think so. Anyway, <laughs> notwithstanding all of that, you know, I think that there is. It's it's fair to say that um, the U.S.'s issues. Um, you know, probably there's many other nations that would probably agree as well. Um, you know, can China do an awful lot about it? Yeah. Look, I think they can. Um, and and I, I guess it depends how you actually measure um, China's um, trade surplus with the U.S. You know, remembering if you know, as I said before, um, uh, you know, twenty. 30% of um, uh, you know, kind of Korea Taiwan exports um, go into China. 
there's a little bit of additional value added to them, you know, a component uh, here or a sort of a change there, and then it's shipped off. So is that re-exporting that's going on in Asia, you know, is that just because, you know, the last port was a, uh, was a Chinese port, you know, are you really in a situation where you're actually attributing all of the value? There's, some, there's been some good studies, very difficult work to do, but maybe 30% of that by, I don't know what the number is, maybe let's say it's 30% of that bilateral um, trade between China and the US is um, a very modest value add. Yeah, from um, other supply chains. Correct, all right. Downstream so countries, yeah. What do you do in that situation? Well, you begin to export some of that value add, and you know, I think we'll probably see that happening. So there will probably, over time, um, you know, that plant uh, in the, you know, the, um, uh, the Mekong Delta, the Yellow Dri River Delta, rather, may be exported into another nation. It's maybe still owned by a Chinese manufacturing company, but it's now got Philippines or somebody else on the, uh, or Vietnam, something like that. You know, so you might see some of that lower value, and that lets China under the, um, uh, you know, the China 2020, you know, and, and those sort of policies look at much higher value um, manufacturing. We, we might see some of that. And I think there's a lot of other commodities um, that, um, you know, that China imports a lot of. It doesn't really import an awful lot of um, uh, from the, um, uh, the US. China imports about 160 billion worth of, uh, of crude um, each year. Um, US is becoming a much, much larger exporter of crude. It exports about 2.3, you know, 2.4 million barrels per day at the moment, and that number is going to carry on rising. About 40 of that, 40% of that goes to the Americas, makes an awful lot of sense. About 20% to Europe, 17% goes to Japan. How much goes to China? 1%. Right. So clearly there's a lot more crude. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if uh, China wants to get its checkbook out, it can start buying US crude. If, um, you know, if, um, 17% of that goes to Japan. Uh, you know, let's see, let's see what happens. And of course, if the demand is there with the way Correct. the crude production works Correct. these days, Correct. they can ramp up production pretty Correct. quickly. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. There's also, I mean, you know, well understood that China is a, uh, an enormous importer of uh, liquid natural gas. Um, clearly, that's something that Australia benefits off, uh, benefits from. Um, you know, more than 50% of that LNG is um, sourced currently out of Australia. Um, um, uh, the U.S. is, uh, you know, as Corpus Christi and the other um, uh, ports come online, uh, becoming a larger um, exporter of um, LNG as you kind of reverse the polarity of those ports that were supposed to be importing LNG um, before uh, fracking came along. That process is, um, is well underway. Um, you know, only about 8% of um, the LNG that the U.S. exports at the moment goes to, um, uh, to China. It's about 44% would go into Latin America, but in interestingly, Korea, it's about 20% excuse me, of the um, exports of liquid natural gas from the U.S. ends up in Korea as well. So there, you, know, you can see evidence of those trade routes. Um, so that's the LNG, it's the, uh, the crude tankers from the U.S. as, uh, as an exporter. And finally, I mean, uh, you know, China imports about 80 billion um, U.S. of uh, agricultural um, uh, products uh, per year. About 20% of that comes from the U.S. Um, you know, so clearly there's ability to displace. Now, I don't see this as fresh demand, and I think that's an important point. You know, China's not really getting its checkbook out, and it's not a, a significant sort fresh source of demand for commodities. This is a di displacement story, and if China starts importing crude from the U.S. and LNG from the U.S., it may actually have a negative impact on other economies that are very heavily leveraged into um, uh, those commodities, and it could have a negative impact on. I mentioned Australia as a major exporter of uh, liquid natural gas into uh, into China. So you know, somebody every month when the uh, when uh, the ABS publishes um, all of the details um, uh, around um, you know which commodities are really driving this structural improvement in the um, the Australian trade position. Um, you know, you're looking at sort of on a value basis, I think year year iron ore would be up somewhere in the region of sort of 12% on a three month year year basis, coal about 20% on a three month year year basis, LNG is up about 100%, it's doubled. 
in, in value terms. Um, so we've got to put this out there as, um, as something that, um, you know, the, I mean, these supply contracts tend to be very long um, dated supply contracts. So I'm not talking about a sudden change that can take place, but incrementally, you know, that next import or, or, or the additional import of um, LNG into, uh, into China just may be the case that it starts to uh, source more of that um, LNG from, uh, from the US. Right, that's certainly going to be very interesting and uh, puts Australia in a very interesting well, position yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, this doesn't happen overnight, particularly mm. in the LNG market. You know, mm. there, aren't, there aren't an awful lot of LNG tankers floating around the world looking for a home. You know, this is a very structural market, 20-year supply, contracts, etc. Um, you know, but China is importing more LNG than it has contracts for. So there is the ability to, um, to shift some of that sort of floating rate LNG that's beginning to develop um, in Asia, um, you know, just divert it. So again, you know, something to, um, to watch. But I think that the, the bottom line is that, you know, that China has the ability to shift whether it's the absolute level of um, trade deficit or rate of change, um, uh, you know, it does have the ability to sort of shift that fairly quickly if it wants to get the checkbook out, start displacing some uh, imports, um, shift some manufacturing offshore, make sure that the last port of coal um, before that box leaves Asia and ends up in the US, it says another country on it. Um, you know, there's a number of ways that, that I think that um, you can address the issue. But that, that's the cosmetic side. And this is where, you know, where do I think the US-China trade relations will be at the end of this year? I think we'll still be in a situation where the US is very openly fighting a trade war with China. I think tariffs will be higher. This is something, you know, I think I said it in the program uh, last time, you know, at some point this year or next year, we could still be in a situation where almost everything that is imported from the US um, into China is tariffed at higher levels than it is currently because you can cosmetically alter, alter the rate of change, you know, maybe alter tens of billions um, in terms of the, the absolute number, but are you going the fundamentals to... Area. The, the fundamentals. The world's two largest economies. Correct. The, um, China supplies so much raw products and, uh, and, uh, and inputs for the US. Correct. That it's, yeah, even with the tariffs, even with the, yeah, it's hard to Absolutely. disentangle. Um, and remember, you know, China is in a very, di you know, it's 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 looking at, you know, it's China 2020, 2025. You know, it's really looking at at, at new industries. I was listening to an amazing um, podcast. I think it was a Goldman Sachs um, uh, podcast when they were saying that um, level of venture capital executed in China this last year uh, was larger than North America and that's the first point that we've ever seen that being the case. The investment mm. and the flow of money into that investment and the upskilling is staggering and, and you know China so Certainly anybody, uh, so I was in China in just in Tianjin um, last year but um, uh, in you know at a World Economic Forum event where there's all these investors and technologists and and, and scientists, uh, and you could feel the um, oh, the intensity of activity. Uh, it's down around Shenzhen, yeah. uh, around Hong Kong, there uh, on on the mainland. Um, the intensity of activity there, the amount of companies, the amount of ideas. Um, and the amount of uh, startups and, and capital that's flowing in through there is is enormous. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, You know, as exciting as as well, kind of feels very parallel to kind of Silicon Valley, maybe. 10 or 12 years ago. Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, it's happening very, very quickly. And, you know, things, AI and facial recognition, you know, given the, the projects that are going on in China at the moment, and access to that data. I mean, that that's, the, if you can throw that much venture capital at it, and, and obviously there's a number of very big changes in, in you know, the, 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 the shadow banking and wealth product, and I think that's div diverting some of this money into, um, you know, proper research, but even the way that the um, uh, universities structure themselves and the focus on papers and, and having scientific um, uh, papers vetted around the world, you know, the focus on research is absolutely staggering. You know, you throw that, that amount of money at it and the, um, the access to data, and you're in a situation where China really is changing very, very ra rapidly, and those skills and, um, are, are changing 
changing. And I, you know, I think, you know, with when you build sort of the Belt and Road, you've got a you've got a very different agenda from the uh, the U.S. agenda. And maybe, you know, part of chi uh, China's assumption is, you know, Xi is the supreme leader for as far as the eye can see. Um, Trump has a finite uh, term. Um, uh, we don't know yet what that's necessarily going to be. You know, I, I think there is a sense that um, you know the Chinese administration will outlive the current U.S. administration. So. We can do some things, but do we really want to sort of get to the root of our fundamental industrial policy? And I don't think yeah. China's going to make the changes. Yeah, like what's the industrial mix? What are we actually Correct. exporting? Correct. Uh, how, how, you know, how skilled is the workforce? All that kind Correct. of stuff. Fascinating. Um, we are tight for time, uh, and I, I do want to wrap it up. I can't <laughs> believe uh, we've been here for um, as long as we have. Um, uh, really important to, I think, just tie this back to the implications for Australia because, um, you know, we talked about strengthening the commodity market. It's yeah. been a big story in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, iron ore, obviously, after what happened in Brazil. Yes. Um, so uh, it's, it's terrible. I was looking at it it's again shocking. today. Now over 150 people have Truly died in shocking. that. Um, there's, uh, and 40 million tons. I thought I exaggerated last week when I said nope. millions of, of tons had been uh, yeah. stripped out of the thing. And I was wondering did, afterwards, did nope. I say it was too much? 40 million tons, 40 million tons. this, this yeah. year. Um, so obviously um, big reverberations through um, through the iron ore markets, all the all the grades, um, pellets, etc. Yep. Now, um, that's good for Australia yeah. uh, yes. in terms of the budget position, all that. Um, so, um, but of course, we've just been through this process in the last couple of weeks where the RBA has done what? kind of done the reverse of what the Fed, had, uh, Fed yeah, has done yeah. and just kind of going, okay, we need to just settle this down a little bit, yep. uh, or well done in parallel with the Fed. Global slowdown, some domestic risks, yep. uh, and um, we need to give change our forward guidance. Yep. So um, I guess most of our listeners will be very familiar with um, the risks that the deceleration in the, uh, or the pullback in, in um, the, the slowdown in the housing market or fall in property prices, should I say? Let me get that clear. The the big big fall in property prices, yes. the risk that that poses, the risk of consumption. One of the other risks is this fragility of the global yep. growth outlook. So, yep. from your perspective, how does that feed into the overall? domestic picture for Australia. Yeah, look, and, and I think it's very important to sort of differentiate between the two. I mean, we're talking about a, um, you know, terms of trade are still heading in the right direction. And I do think, you know, it, we're not immune. Clearly, we're not immune. But, you know, remember that there is another story going on in China at the moment that's improving air quality. When you improve air quality, what you've got to do is force your very heavy polluting industry um, either to close or to be much more efficient or, you know, somewhere in between. And we We've seen that incredibly, and I think that's one of the key factors that has supported the commodities that Australia exports, the higher quality iron ore, um, the, uh, the coking coal, uh, but also, you know, you're in a situation where you improve um, uh, or try to improve air quality, you try to burn less coal for electricity, you import more LNG. We've got the supply of LNG coming on stream, Itch This, which, which was kind of the penultimate um, uh, plant come, out, come on stream late last year, we're still waiting. Kind frustrated but preload which is one of these massive um, sort of aircraft carrier style um, uh, floating LNG plants um, that's just about to uh, begin its first export of um, LNG so we've got the supply we've had the structural enormous structural change and really a big change in direction G you know we've got to um, you know ensure the air quality we've got to improve the um, uh, the life of the individual and improve their finances etc so we've got, you know we've got the product it's all matching very closely together. Then obviously we overlay what's gone on in the last couple of weeks and you are absolutely right. Vale would export um, on an annual basis about 380, 390 million tonnes. Um, so give or take 400, let's say, to make it nice and easy from an arithmetic, arithmetic point so of view. It's about 10%. So ask a question, if Saudi woke up one day and there was an issue that was kind of it was going to potentially shut down 10% of, of Saudi production of crude, where would crude prices be? Um, the market's been fairly reserved. Um, 
but sort of when I look at you know uh, you know clearly Australia the largest exporter uh, Vale um, and Brazil we've actually seen uh, when you look at where the growth of iron ore exports have come from uh, in the uh, the last year Vale exports Brazilian exports would be running at about plus three percent give or take um, on a three month year year basis. Australian exports are running at about a minus at 4% at the moment. Mm -hmm. Why Brazil ramping up? Well, SC11D, which is the biggest, most efficient mine in the world, um, great quality iron ore. Uh, Vale is, uh, is ramping that up. What they've tended to do is, is shut down the less efficient, poorer quality iron ore. And obviously, the changes in terms of demand for higher quality iron ore, which is more efficient steel producers in China wanting the, the super high grade um, iron ore, they've probably forced that to be the case. So the, uh, Brazil has had no choice really but to um, more rapidly shut down um, lower quality iron ore. But then this tailings thing comes along. Um, and this it, is the, yeah, the, the dam. Yeah. yeah, so this is this upstream tailings. Um, there's been a number of investigations. There was a, um, a horrific um, accident in, um, I think it was um, uh, British Columbia, um, 2014, tailings dam. You know, we've had other issues. Um, uh, so, you know, I think the mining industry is looking very, very carefully, you know, and the concept of tailings and mine safety arguably may not have been taken seriously mm. enough. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the industry may yeah, actually... Uh, it maybe impacts copper and to an extent gold. I think you know there are other metals and mining companies around the world that are probably looking a bit more closely at the inspection process and the independence of that inspection process. But to sort of come back to the point, I guess what I'm trying to paint a picture of here is that you know this picture of 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 trade issues. You know it's it's almost as if. Um, you know, developments in China have somewhat sort of immunized um, Australia. And certainly when I go up, you know, when I look forward, um, uh, you know, I'm not really in a situation where um, uh, if, you know, as long as China continues to focus on improving air quality, and I think that's very much at the core of what Xi, um, the supreme leader in uh, China, really wants here, I'm just not sure that this situation um, uh, unwinds. So, you know, the market is in the process of upward revising its um, iron ore um, uh, price forecasts. We still do see weakness late this year and into next year because the market will readjust. But there's not an awful lot of um, spare production here in Australia um, that we can ramp up. Uh, our big miners have tended to focus on maximizing, um, you know, trains per day, ships per tide, and ripping out the uh, the cost. Uh, and they've done an excellent job of that. And when you look at, you know, the, the balance sheets and the uh, the capital that's being returned to shareholders through special buybacks and dividends, etc., they've done an yeah, amazing South job. 32, I think, uh, this week. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you know, it's very positive from a credit. It's positive from from an equity point of view, what we really haven't seen is an awful lot of investment in additional mines. Mm. Um, mines start to decay. Rio has made some announcements recently uh, about increased investment, but it's really replacing um, uh, decaying mines as we move through the end of this decade. Right, rather than extra capacity. So that, which is good for the price, obviously. Which is good yeah. for the price. Yeah. But, but what we're probably in is a situation where we have a deficit in the iron ore market for an unknown per period of time. And given the regulator's reaction to the previous issue, uh, where many poor souls lost their lives, the fact that it's happened a second time, yeah. I can't see the regulator saying, you know, let's just move on here. Uh, I think it's a pretty fundamental story. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, I, I think Valley Valley is basically mothballing that Correct. project now. Yeah. That plus many other. Um, so, any, so it, it's sort of what you, roughly the flows are where we're, we've, we've lost a license for 40. Um, there's an additional 30 of mines that were in the process of being mothballed anyway. They're gone. And what you're doing is you're ramping up S11D to try and make some of the difference. But the net net, 70 lost. Um, uh, 30 of potential ramp up, uh, 40 million ton deficit. It's only about sort of three-ish percent of global production, but you know Australian Brazilian exports um, are running at about flat year year anyway, um, and there isn't an awful lot of spare capacity. So, so the external sector is is positive. 
the other part of the story clearly is um, is um, is the domestic situation. It's the um, it's the housing um, uh, situation, and obviously that sort of housing consumer nexus. I mean, Bill Evans, uh, Westpac chief economist, um, you know, was stuck with this no change this year, next year, and obviously fairly recently extended that through into uh, 2020. We've had sort of two seven two six um, two six for 2018 year ended, 2019 year ended, 2020 GDP growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, the RBA had sort of three and a quarters, three and a halfs, and obviously um, with the statement of monetary policy, pulled that back. Pulled that back, yeah. two and three quarter, three, um, uh, two and three quarter. Um, our sense is, given that we're um, two seven two six two six, um, you know, uh, mid March we get um, Q four um, uh, GDP. Obviously, we'll be watching that one um, uh, very, very closely. Um, a, the impact of um, you know weak retail sales, and obviously we saw that really coming through. First half of last year, we were seeing tremendously strong, particularly New South Wales. You know, in the year to June, um, uh, in New South Wales on a core, you know, on a, on a real basis, you're running at three percent. Um, uh, Q4 last year, you were looking at minus one point one percent, minus one percent. So a very dramatic swing. Not surprisingly, the impact of um, of housing, and obviously this stock of housing, you know, when you look at the approvals data, um, you know, I, one chart I like looking at is just the absolute level of housing approvals. You're back down, I think it's May 13, housing approvals were down to. So that that future stock of, um, uh, you know, housing, whether it's individual, whether it's, you know, low rise, high rise, it's really, uh, it, it's coming off and coming off hard. And this is the, I guess this is the balance. Um, that, uh, that the RBA has to look at. Um, you know, the good thing is we've got strong commodity prices, we've got a weak currency, um, uh, that helps. We've got an election coming up. You know, that um, uh, terms of trade story obviously boosts company profitability, it, it um, improves the fiscal position, yeah. and obviously so we've got an election. So if you need, and again, there's so much talk about this in the economics world at the moment, is the role of fiscal policy. Correct. Um, well. I think it would be very, very strange uh, if we didn't see some kind of fiscal stimulus that's um, that's supportive of growth uh, coming Correct. in this calendar year. Correct. Um, between the budget in April and whatever the Labour Party does, yeah. Um, if it is elected, as everybody kind of expects it to be, yeah. Um, so, um, so that'll be interesting, and that might be something the order of you know half a percent or more of GDP. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. so we'll have that as well. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, you know, the outlier risk is 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 the problems with um, uh, the problems that come with consumption. Yep. Uh, as of a course. result of the wealth effect. Correct. Um, but then also um, strain on um, a whole bunch of other things, um, lending to businesses, whether it's this general tightening in credit or pressure on the bank system yeah. um, that would come in. You know, the 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 three print. Three percent, one percent scenario where yeah. there's a very dramatic pullback, yeah. uh, and uh, and something, you know, uh, more intimidating happens. Absolutely. Um, so, but again, you know, I think that's as as you pointed out. There's all of these other things that you're kind of working to do it. And now that we're we're through this Royal Commission too, we're, we're, there's a few months to see how this all washes out in terms of the credit. Yeah, uh, provision. It, absolutely. Remember, there's a political cycle that we need to go through as well to mm -hmm. see what recommendations really are taken up. So, you know, there, there, there remains an unknown. But I think, you know, I, th I think you raise a good point. I mean, monetary policy and fiscal policy are, um, uh, are, are in a very different um, uh, situation at the moment. They're marching to a very different beat. Um, commodity prices in the external sector, um, you know, versus um, uh, consumption, you know, they're marching to a very different beat. Um, We've got very strong uh, business investment. We've got very strong public sector investment. You know, um, when you uh, walk about in um, Sydney at the moment, just coming here from uh, Central Station, you know, you uh, cross our uh, wonderful light rail. Who knows when that's necessarily going to be uh, up and running? But you know, it, it is valid to note that we do have strong population growth. We've got tremendous infrastructure. You know, a lot of these connexes are, um, uh, you know, very exciting. They're going to be coming on stream in the not too distant future and you kind of just you know you address those um, those nodes in the uh, the north the west and the uh, the south you make it up much easier um, for um, uh, you know people coming in from the west coming in from the north coming in from the south to avoid uh, you know and we, you know, that's what the Connex network is really about um, all, all, all we need to do in order to solve all the problems is for Melbourne to move the airport 
um, somewhere remotely near the city. Um, <laughs> well, that would help. Yeah, yeah, or or um, or, or build. A, I mean, GDP per capita would would improve. Um, by um, you know, I, I would say several thousand dollars per head if they managed Absolutely. to do that. But, uh, Absolutely, no, no, be so. a, lot of, a lot of angry taxi drivers. But, yeah. uh, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. um, probably, thankfully for you, we talked about this uh, briefly just before coming on the show. Um, we're out of time, so we're not going to be able to talk about the rugby. Maybe we'll get you on a, uh, another time uh, after the Six Nations. Um, was a good game. It was uh, between good Ireland game. and Scotland. It first was half a, was fantastic. Uh, first half was fantastic. I do think that the uh, referee had. Um, uh, you know, did have some sort of impact, but as Wouldn't I have been anything to do with all the hands in the rock and I, all, but you know, I as I uh, did uh, suggest to one of my French friends in that Singapore uh, on that Monday morning, just as well, we're not. French. There we go. Yes, Less said about that, the better. I think that <laughs> yes, the worst right. defeat since um, 1911, I think, really? was the, uh, the quote. So, wow. Um, so I, I uh, will confess, I got up um, to watch that England-France game. I think yeah. it started at 2 a.m. in the morning. And I set my alarm, got up to watch it. And after 20 minutes, I went back to bed. Uh, this is hopeless. These guys are going to get smashed. Yeah. Woke up the next morning, saw the score. I was like, well, okay. correct decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, exactly. you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Guest this week, uh, for what was an absolutely fascinating chat, um, it was a Global Head of Market Strategy at Westpac, Robert Rennie. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all of that uh, immensely useful and interesting uh, info. Um, it's great. Uh, it was certainly going to be a fascinating topic uh, over over the coming year. An absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Uh, we're also on Spotify or you just search Devils and Details wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. I'm on Twitter individually, uh, Paul Colgan, that's at Colgo. And Rob is on Twitter as well. Um, you can find him on there too. Uh, he's got lots of charts and uh, post links to some of his research, etc. Uh, worth a follow. Okay, we'll catch you next time.